Generating traffic and sales can be a challenge for online merchants. But selling on the Walmart marketplace puts your products in front of millions of customers who shop on walmart.com. And right now, sellers who join Walmart Marketplace can save up to 50% on referral and fulfillment fees for the first 90 days. So get started today. Head over to marketplace.walmart.com savings. That's marketplace.walmart.com savings. Welcome to E-Commerce Conversations, a podcast by Practical E-Commerce. What's going on, Internet? Eric Panels here, back again with another e-commerce conversations. Hope all is going well. What's going well on the other side of the internet, on the other side of the screen for me is David, David Hauser. Welcome to the show, man. Eric, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine, pleasure's all mine. I'm excited to have you on here. I'm excited to talk. Someone who's had such an accomplished entrepreneur journey. Why don't you give a real quick 30-second pitch on what you're doing nowadays and, and maybe where you came from? Yeah, sure. So... Uh, background, I spent a lot of time in software as a service and built Grasshopper from zero to $30 million a year in revenue and ultimately sold it to Citrix, a large publicly traded company after a uh, overnight success of 12 years. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time working on that, built and grew Chargeify in the recurring billing space, sold that twice, most recently to Battery Ventures, probably made over 100 angel investments mostly in SaaS, but also in other areas like CPG and marketplaces and, and similar. And, you know, I've been really lucky to work with great people through that time and have some good success and be able to share that success with others, right? And from our team and also from our learnings. Yeah. So first of all, I'm Grasshopper customer. We've been, uh, geez, man, pretty much since we started, what it would have been 2013, we've been using Grasshopper. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know it's no longer your baby, so but they're still collecting thirty dollars a month or whatever it is. It's unreal that product, man. I, I don't know. Were you guys the first with that type of product in the marketplace, or just the best at it? No. So I mean, we were not the first at all. You know, the the systems or PBX systems had been around for a long time. I think we were the first to really aggressively target, market, and build solutions for the entrepreneur and small business owner. Right. So. If you had under 10 employees, that was our typical target. Like we just designed and built for that group, spent a lot of time on understanding the problems and challenges and also how to market to them while others were in different areas, right? So not really the first company, but one of the early companies to really target that group. And I think timing wise was also around like constant contact and others that were all, we were all targeting that entrepreneur, right? Now it's a very busy category. At the time, it wasn't as busy. Yeah. And that's entirely bootstrap, which I'm a little fond of, man. Correct. So I guess like you've built a lot of success in software as a service, but you're buying CPGs. Why is that? Yeah. So, you know, we, we did the opposite of what people I think expect people to do, which is, you know, we went from high margin, no inventory business in software as a service to go to a low margin, high inventory in CPG and consumer goods. And you know, I, I'm actually quite happy we did. We were able to take a lot of the learnings from software as a service, especially in the marketing side and apply it to a new industry. But I think there's something to be said about creating something that can be touched and held and is something that people value. It has a different feeling than software, right? And we, I think to, we wanted to experience that. And now we found success there. And We've now purchased, you know, multiple properties there. Most recently, Perfect Keto, 
a very large keto brand. And we're continuing to purchase there. But I really love that, you know, actual creation of something valuable. Yeah, I mean, you and me both. It's just like, it feels like, no offense to software as a service listeners out there, which I can't imagine there's a lot of y'all, but if you are, I don't know, like you're on this planet and you touch things and it's it's just real. Like you've made an impact on the world and I know software makes an impact on the world as well and it, it brings value to people, but it's just like, it's there. It's just like physically there. And in a world that goes increasingly digital, I think there's just something charming about it. I always think of it this way, like, when you describe to someone, hey, I'm building this software, most people's eyes glaze over. They don't really understand what it is. When you say, hey, I've made this product, even if they don't understand what the product is, they don't want it, they don't need it because they're not the target. They're like, oh, that's cool. You created something, right? And I think that's the feeling that we're talking about. So I got a question for you. You're buying companies that make these. Do you have any like itch to make your own? Yeah, so we did build our own brand. And, you know, my thesis at this point is we are best suited for scaling and growing brands, not launching brands. Like our skill set, our expertise, our teams, right? Like they're built for a different stage. So to make them most valuable and make us most valuable, I think we're just better off buying. And we look for companies doing more than $5 million in sales. And that gap in the starting stage is better suited for a different set of entrepreneurs than me. That's all. Yeah, but you don't get that itch to, to just do something stupid. <laughs> I mean, as an entrepreneur, I think I always have that. <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've probably made a lot of poor decisions in building all sorts of things for me. And it probably would have been cheaper to just buy it from someone else. So I've had some very expensive meals or, you know, whatever I've decided to build. And I think that's because my skill set no longer exists as strongly in the starting stage. So I want to talk about that too, because I feel like next February, Beard Brand will be celebrating 10 years of existence. And the grind that you have in those early days to take, you know, something from zero to one is completely different than, you know, one to 10, and of course, 10 to 100. When do you feel like, I assume you've lost that, that grind. Is that true? So I still love it. I just don't think that I'm as good at it anymore. Yeah. Right. And I think there's a combination of problems there. One is, when you have more capital, I think you make very poor decisions in those early days because it's easy to say, oh, it's only $10,000, right? And I think you easily make that mistake again and again, and it's very difficult to get out of, right? Then when you look at my actual skill set today after developing companies over decades now, I don't think I'm as good at that anymore, right? Like the doing everything like I much prefer to be hyper-focused on an activity, right? Do that one thing, do it very well. And then I think the other skill set that I've developed is how to build a team around me, especially an executive team. And that team is poorly designed for the starting stage because an executive team is thinking strategically, not hands-on. Yeah, I feel like it's been really funny because this is something I've thought about a lot over the past couple of years and where we're at with the business is just like, I've become like, frankly, incompetent at remedial things, like to an obscene level, like a calendar is like the, one of the hardest things for me to manage mailing something. Like I literally will take weeks to simply mail something or drop it in the mail. And like back in the day, you know, when I started, I was just doing all this stuff, like all at once. And, and I just had all my shit together. So I've, I've, 
lost this ability to execute like on a hands-on like execution level. It's kind of like, and I don't know if you went through any kind of, you know, like self-evaluation journey or something during this, where you kind of like question your abilities as a person, as you transition into like a more strategic role, because it doesn't feel like you're actually doing anything when you're just strategizing. Yeah. I think that there's two things at play. The first is, it's not that you, you can't do those things. It's that you have changed your time value, right? So when you look at it, the value of time to doing that task, right? Managing the calendar, mailing the thing, right? Is too small compared to the other things you could do, right? So I, I think that's the evaluation that we naturally make as humans over time as you continue to progress, right? I spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about not just my skills, but like what I wanted to do. Like when I sold Grasshopper, I spent a lot of time on myself, did a 200 hour yoga teacher training, invested heavily in my health and well, like, all the things that I think I had neglected. And as part of that, spent a lot of time just sitting and call it meditation or not, it doesn't really matter, but sitting and thinking and truly finding like, what's my identity? What do I care about? What do I want to optimize for? And, and I decided I wanted to optimize for happiness, not for, you know, return on capital or profit. Like I wanted to optimize for how I would be most happy. Yeah. And what makes you the most happy? Yeah. So I love being able to do what I do every day. And that's help entrepreneurs realize the next step in their journey. I love experiences over things. So I'll spend unlimited amounts of money on experiences and very little on physical things like a car or whatever. That realization was so powerful because naturally I'm a frugal person, but being able to have the freedom to say, you know what, here's how I prioritize how I spend. And if it's an experience I'm not going to be frugal, right? That freedom was really interesting. I think delivered more happiness. And then the other two pieces, learning and connections. Like I really decided at that stage, I wanted to continue being a lifelong learner. So now I've been able to invest more time in reading or listening to books. Um, I've gone back to all the classics now. So trying to kind of go back to the books I was supposed to read in high school and probably didn't pay attention to. And then connections. So the best example is like when I make angel investments now, I'm not looking at like market size and, you know, like there's some obviously baseline, like, do I think this person can be successful? But the real question I'm asking is, do I think I want to have a connection with them and the type of people that are around them? Right. And that's what I'm buying in that investment, which is highly different than how do I get a return on my investment? Yeah. It's funny. You and I share similar things. I've partnered up with a couple of buddies to start a business called Area 627, which does like more angel investments. So like $50,000. We're working with people doing six figures and it's the same thing. It's like, we just want to enjoy the journey. You know, like I've got everything that I need. I've got a roof over my head. I've got a, you know, wife and two kids and you know, my bills are paid for. And for me, like freedom is key driver. And like you, material possessions, are, they're fun when you get them. And then about... A week later, a couple of days later, you're like, okay, well, what's the next one? And most of them just cost you more money than yeah. anything else to yeah. maintain and keep. <laughs> well, it's like the whole boat joke, you know, that your yeah. second happiest day is buying a boat. The first happiest day is selling it. Yeah. So I, I agree with, you know, kind of like your journey. I feel like this is something that I feel like needs to get out more often because within the entrepreneurial community, it's always this glamorous grow it and sell it and buy your Lambo and get on the cover of whatever magazine or 
I don't know if people need to go through those things to realize like that's not the answer, or maybe it is the answer for some people. But I think that once you realize the journey is the way, then it's a lot more fun. What got you interested in the idea of selling Grasshopper? Yeah, so we were never interested in selling Grasshopper, actually, which is very interesting. Like we had no exit plan. We had no, you know, here's where we're going to get to. And then this happens or, you know, here are the people that would buy us like those discussions. We just never thought that way. We thought, how do we build a company that we love being at that we know is solving a true problem? And it was a problem that we had as entrepreneurs, right? So our core purpose was empowering entrepreneurs to succeed. And we lived that every day, right? So you don't have an end game when that's your core purpose. And it was, you know, people have asked this so many times. And I think the question is, you know, how do you know when to sell? And a few, few things were a factor for us. One, all of our net worth tied up in one asset, right? So like, that's just a risky thing in the long run, right? Just like you had the things we wanted, right? Like I lived in the house I wanted, had the car I wanted, I could go on vacation, like bills were paid for, right? So there was no additional need beyond that. But from a long-term perspective, it's still a risky scenario, right? Two, if someone's willing to pay you more than you think it's valued at, and if it's way more than you think it's valued at, like as the entrepreneur, you have near perfect information, right? Like no one in the world knows the business better, <laughs> right? Right. And so an external party, if there's an arbitrage between those numbers, that's, that's relatively big. I think it's something to at least consider, or if it's time for the next part of the journey, right? Like, I think we were getting to the end of our time at Grasshopper of being able to grow it and be super passionate about it. And someone came to us was willing to pay a lot of money, cared about the brand, like a lot of the other check marks were marked and we decided, okay, we're going to sell it. And we didn't go through a process. I think this is the biggest thing that is a myth out there. People are like, oh, I need to go through this process where people are going to bid it up and all of this stuff. Yeah, that happens once every now and then when Cisco and Microsoft are buying a company. Most of the time, a process is expensive and fails. <laughs> I think it's better to find the right partner and do a deal quickly and well. Yeah. How quickly is quickly? So I think it depends on company scale and due diligence to some extent. I mean, our deal with Citrix from initial conversation to closing was probably about a year. But you know, from signing uh, an LOI to closing was less. I think it depends on the type of acquirer. You know, are they experienced or not? Have they made acquisitions or not? And then how willing are you to understand the risk factors, right? Like, I forget who told me this, but during the process, like someone explained to me that every call, every email in the process from LOI to close is an opportunity for the whole thing to blow up, right? So you have to be willing to take on that risk because the longer you push it out, <laughs> the more risk there is. Every single email that gets sent back and forth and discussing. So like I view it as discuss the most important points and move quickly towards close compared to worry about every point in a deal. Now, do you take that same process? Now you're on the opposite end of the table, you know, like how quickly do you try to close a deal when investing in these companies and what kind of deals do you look for? What's your perfect company for you? Yeah. So we try to be very friendly to founders because we've been on that side and, you know, we have the capacity to close within 30 days. 
you know, we have the experience, the due diligence team, the legal team, all of those things to be able to do that. But again, that's also dependent on the company having, you know, similar viewpoints and legal counsel that wants to move at the same speed and, and such, right? We also have some benefit that we have capital readily accessible, so we're not going to find capital for deals. Our typical or best you know, acquisition target is doing above $10 million. Our bottom is $5 million where we'll look. We want to see positive EBITDA, preferably a million dollars or more, but you know, there's some flexibility around that. Definitely repeat behavior. So some sort of repeat purchasing behavior, even if it's not on a per product basis, although we love consumable products, right? Like you guys experience this when you, know, you have to keep buying the same stuff. That's a great customer. So we like that behavior and we like to see at least the potential of omni-channel. So it doesn't mean that the product or company has to be in retail or wholesale relationships, but we like to see that that's possible. Like the product has that ability. And then lastly, no more than 60% on Amazon. We're not a quote unquote, we buy Amazon businesses, right? Like there's plenty of those guys. That's not where we like to play. And I think Amazon is a smart channel, not one that I want super high concentration in. Yeah. Are you just emailing people? Is that how you're finding them or? Oh, how are we finding yeah, people? Yeah, I mean, like what's, what's that? <laughs> He's just cold emailing them and it's like, hey man. I mean, we do cold email people and I think it's actually quite effective. I've gotten lots of those emails and I'm willing to have those conversations. I think our best results thus far have come from personal relationships, obviously, where there's some built-in trust. And we don't look at deals that are brokered because they're usually overpriced. And, you know, I don't think well set up for the founder. There's a lot of wasted time and effort during that. And we can get into the details, but that's my personal belief. So yeah, personal relationships and like reaching out to people like you and saying, hey, this is what we do, putting it out there in the world and saying, if you know people that fit this category, love to talk to them, even if they're not interested in selling, like, I'd love to be a resource for them and help them out. And I've probably had 10 phone calls this week of founders that are not ready to sell, but I'll happily offer myself as a resource and say, tell me how I can be helpful this year, next year, 10 years from now. And hopefully that pays off over time. Yeah. I wanted to touch base on a couple things. The thought process, I wanted to elaborate on the whole broker thing. Somebody brought, brought this up and they said, why are you giving a broker 6% of your business? And I was like, man, that's exactly true. It's like, what did they do to earn six? And I get like the whole process, but I think about like my nine years of building this business, why would I give someone, you know, for a couple of months of work to just sell it? That percentage of the equity. I don't know. It seemed a little crazy to me. I think they do some things that are helpful, right? Like they put together a package and a deck to cut down some time, but you could just pay to have someone do that, right? Like, <laughs> Just pay $10,000 and have someone do that work, right? It's not difficult. It's not complex. It's not rocket science. It's a pretty known process, right? Like, so I, I think that's one. Two, when I look at broker deals, it actually signals the wrong thing for me in that when I see the, a broker involved, it seems like they need to sell, want to sell. And if you're on the founder's side, it's in a much better position to be like, you know what? Hey, David, we're not even looking to sell, Right. If you signal the opposite, I think it's not the right signal that you want. Yeah. It's like hiring employees, man. You don't want to hire any unemployed employees. <laughs> so you acquire a brand. I assume you're taking a minority ownership. So we take majority ownership. We control and then build and scale with our playbooks and processes. 
but we try to structure it in a founder friendly way where there's additional upside to the founder in the long term. So they could roll some equity forward, as well as the potential of having equity within our larger set of brands, right? So they get a little bit of diversification outside of the just the deal happening today. But yeah, we look to take majority positions that we control and run the company and utilize the founder where necessary, if it's a personal brand or whatever else. But yeah, it's run our processes and playbooks. Like we know how to scale the Amazon channel. So we'll do that, right? What's the intent with the business as you have them? Are you you just trying to build a holding company or are you trying to flip them? Yeah, so we have a long-term vision of this. So it's, it's definitely a holding company. That's how it's structured. We're not looking to you know, make short-term flips here. So we, we want to build and grow the equity of the brand and create a platform of very strong brands that are, can stand on their own, both from an operational standpoint, but also from a brand standpoint. So while shared services can help contribute to that, like back office, you know, marketing, accounting, we can help scale things that way. The company needs to be able to stand independently on its own, right? And I think taking a lot from, you know, how Berkshire Hathaway buys companies, right? And they think about like, this is not a bet, can we flip this in two years? This is a bet for how big can we make this in 30 years? Yeah. What are you seeing in the marketplace in terms of valuations for companies of this size? So it's, it's hard to say, right? Like, I think there's a lot of differences depending on category, if it's food, if it's not, but like, just take as a general rule of thumb with a positive EBITDA company, you know, we're seeing between three and five X, you know, EBITDA numbers as a fair market valuation, depending on lots of other factors, right? And is that adjusted? Is that forward-looking? Is that trailing 12? Like there's lots of questions around that, but I, I think that's relatively fair based on both broker deals and non-broker deals that we see close pretty regularly. And the first question you always get is, that doesn't sound like a lot. I was expecting 50X from a strategic. Like, that's cool. We're happy for founders to wait for that. That's no problem. But everyone's on a different journey and not everyone wants to wait for that. Yeah. So you guys are looking a little more on that value play. And of course, like, I don't know your entire holdings. How many brands have you acquired so far? So our largest... Acquisition is Perfect Keto that we've closed most recently. We have a few others that are in in the pipeline. We had a brand we started, we consolidated that. We purchased another keto brand at the same time. So that was kind of all play in one space. So that's kind of been the first major thesis that we developed under, kind of better for you food. But, you know, we're looking at, you know, everything across the board, hair, care, beauty, clothes, other food items, you know all categories are pretty open to us. Do you feel like that's going to come back to bite you in the ass to be broad with your strategy versus niching down and really just kind of focusing on, you know, food or keto or that lifestyle? It's definitely a question that have come up internally a number of times. I believe the right approach is to be more broad and think about this as, you know, diversification within a portfolio compared to singular focus in a portfolio. There's arguments on both sides, obviously. I guess we'll find out if we were right or wrong. But for today, you know, I, I do believe that pretty thoroughly. And if we look at other long-term investors, I think that plays out, right? Like Berkshire didn't buy only insurance companies. Now they did have a strong thesis in insurance, right? And they did acquire a number of assets, but it's not the only thing in a portfolio, right? They also have a furniture company, right? Like kind of across the board. Yeah, so what is your perfect acquisition look like? Is it 
you come in, obviously they check all the boxes from a, a business perspective. You do the deal. The founder stays on if they need it, if they're a brand, but, but generally it sounds like they're taking a back seat. You know, they're, they're kind of re- enjoying their retirement. And then do you already have like executives lined up that you're going to just tap or how do you find that people and, and place them in so quickly? And then, you know, kind of like roll out the new strategic vision for the brand. Yeah. So we have a number of kind of GMs that we've worked with in the past or, you know, however, you know, we know them very closely. So we would place one of those in there, but the way we think about it, and let's take the example today at Perfect Keto, like my partner, Mike is running that company day to day. So like stepped in full hands on, right. Implement our processes and playbooks and the things that we do. And then we'll step back out. Right. And a GM will take place and we'll operationalize and continue to run across the board. Right. So I think there's a combination of a hands-on period where we get things to where we want them. And then a hands-off period where we allow that to run through our, you know, process and, you know, our people. Yeah. What is unique about your process that's able to scale these businesses so well? What's the secret sauce, man? Can you share that? Yeah, absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing is all that secret. Most of it's been stolen, one. But two, I think what we've become very good at is just operationalizing these things and being very, very diligent about it. And that just takes patience and time. So like, I like, for example, the EOS process, right? The traction book. We ran Rockefeller Habits for a long time, right? Prior to that, like those are not secrets, right? But they're not easy to do, (laughs) right? So I think it's, you know, getting those things right. Now, obviously, there's some things we've learned in, you know, performance marketing or how to run affiliates or, you know, in highly specific areas that are more of an SOP, right? Like it's written out, it's more specific. But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, those aren't really secrets, right? Like lots of people have figured that out. We documented it. That's what we did. Yeah. I'm a big fan of traction as well. And I think it does take a certain kind of person, like everything has its level, you know, level of implementation, I would say. And like, I'm an ideas guy. I'm a, I'm a vision guy. You're the visionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not like a hold your feet to the fire kind of guy, which I think is also very important within the EOS is just holding that accountability and making sure everyone has that going on. So being able to have the right people who can do that is a, a skill set and it takes a lot of talent, a lot of interpersonal skills that uh, I think probably not all businesses have. Are you seeing most companies at that size, they're not running EOS? It just kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Most companies are running nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and and if they are, they, they don't have the kind of fortitude to stick with it, right? So they've kind of tried something and it stopped and they then didn't go back to it. And like, we see that a lot. And there's a little bit of recovery that you have to do internally. Like, oh, it's another one of these things to do. So you kind of have to prove it out. But a lot of it is patience, right? And, you know, creating that rhythm of setting the goals and doing it again and again. And like that process creates something really special over time. And yeah, most people are not running a lot of anything. Yeah. And they're just putting out fires, I guess. Running around like a yeah. chicken with your head cut off. That's a little bit of the fun of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Where can people learn more about you or reach out to you if they've got a $5 million business that they're looking to uh, liquidate? Yeah. <laughs> Li- liquidate is probably the wrong term. Yeah. Not liquidate. Uh, yeah. Uh, are looking for the next step yeah, in their yeah. journey. So davidhauser.com, that's where you can find me. I write a weekly email newsletter uh, that goes to over 10,000 people a week. And I talk about all of these topics, health, wellness, 
wealth, entrepreneurship, all of these topics. Also has my email address on there and all my contact information. Repeat Capital is the company that, you know, that we're building and that's repeat.xyz. And, you know, happy to talk to anyone that fits within that range or not. And both, you know, looking to sell or not and just want, you know, some advice about like what things might be valuable for an acquirer a year from now or two years from now. Uh, happy to have those conversations. And that's Hauser, H-A-U-S-E-R. Yeah. Hauser, DavidHauser.com. David, thanks for uh, sharing a little bit of time with me and my uh, listeners. I really appreciate that. Thanks, Eric, for having me. I hope our listeners enjoy this chat. It flew by for me. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did and you got a couple of nuggets to take home with you. As always, this has been another e-commerce conversations. Cheers and keep on growing.